The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Our enduring point of difference or competitive advantage is that we can invest for the medium term. So when the market is very short term focused, the ability to look beyond that and say this is a good business for the right price, I think gives you a distinct advantage in the stock market particularly. Well, hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Good Investing Podcast. My name is Matt Nicard. I am co-founder of Ethical Partners. And backed by popular demand today, we have investment director and co-founder of Ethical Partners, Nathan Parkin. Welcome back to the studio, Nathan. Thanks, Matt. All right. Before we get into this episode, now this episode is called 15 Questions You've Always Wanted to Ask But Haven't. Interesting uh, episode, I must say. So 15 questions coming right up. But before we do that, I just want to ask you, Nathan, have you caught up on sleep post-reporting season? Just recovering from that, actually. It's only just finished. So always an intense period of focus for, for me and the team here. And really, during reporting season, all your focus is on the 200 companies that report in a basically a two-week period. So very intense period of analysis and, uh, and focus for the team. And what were the main takeaways for you? Main takeaway is that I think the market remains pretty confused about the economic outlook, which was understandable. So there was more downgrades than upgrades during reporting season. And you can measure that level of confusion by by the increased volatility we saw during reporting season, probably one of the most volatile we've seen in recent times. What's interesting from here is that you've got quite a big dislocation in in the way the market's thinking about interest rates. So if you look forward, if the market looks forward, uh, there's quite a consensus view that interest rates fall sometime during 2024. That's driving the PE of higher growth companies up. But if the market looks backwards uh, and sees the interest rate increases that have occurred already, um, that's driving down the value of hard assets. So both of those things don't necessarily occur at the same time or can't occur in the medium term at the same time. You can't have a view that rates are going down, uh, which is driving some things up, and a view that rates are going to go higher, which is driving other hard assets down. So that's creating some really good opportunities from here. It's also obvious that costs are still going up for business and there are some uh, very early signs of unemployment rising. So there's a, a pressure coming on the consumer. And so we look at all of that and distill that information and say, well, where are the best opportunities from here? And I think that that confusion that's going on in markets is providing some really interesting medium-term investing opportunities for the fund. Yeah, it certainly was a volatile period. I don't think I've ever seen as many stocks move up or down by the percentage changes that they did on the day of the result. Uh, and we don't get too caught up on what happens on one day, of course, but it's often a sign that there is a big dispersion in views as to um, what people want to buy and what people want to sell. So those stocks are moving around a lot um, indeed. So, all right, let's move on to this uh, this episode, get into these 15 questions. We get a lot of questions from investors, from those that know us, and they range from basic to complex. We spend a, most of our time speaking to companies and investors. So we thought we'd just sum up the 15 questions you've always wanted to ask, but haven't. I think the other thing to comment on is that this industry can be a, a little bit you know, full of bluff and bluster. You can be talking about a topic and then realise that uh, the person you're talking with may not exactly understand what you're talking about. And uh, I remember back 
back in the day, many years ago, I'd been working with someone in the real estate sector for some time and they pulled me aside quietly one day and said, um, Matt, uh, what's a cap rate? And we'd been talking about it for many years prior to that. Hey, Matt, what actually is a cap rate? Is that one of the 15 questions? No, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I mean, cap rate, ca- capitalisation rate for, for a real estate asset um, and, you know, 5% cap rate um, is almost like an inverse PE in a lot of ways, so 20 times PE, and really reflects a number of factors um, regarding the asset around risk, assurity of income, perhaps age of building, capex requirements, and so on. And obviously, the real estate sector at the moment in most sectors is seeing cap rates expand. I know you didn't really want an answer, but I couldn't help myself. It's always uh, it's always useful, you know. And I think those um, some of the jargon that this industry uses is always worthwhile just explaining a bit more. And so that's what we're here to do today. All right. Well, I've got 15 questions to run through. I've got a little bell here. So if you go over time, you don't want to keep our listeners uh, for too long, I will ring it. Um, and uh, I'm sure you'll be concise, so I'm sure I won't need to ring it. All right. Question number one. So Ethical Partners is a quality value manager. What does that actually mean from a style perspective? So two parts to that. What is a quality business? Uh, and then we'll talk about value. And that's essentially what is the price you pay for it. So our definition of a quality business is one that has a low level of debt. It is a business that makes consistent levels of cash flow. And it's one that the management team and board are thinking about sustainability issues. And we will meet with the management team and board of companies and assess the quality of management so that we're looking for a track record in management teams and boards. We're looking for capital allocation decisions and a business that is is of quality, enough quality for us to invest, has just good, strong fundamentals. And so there's a lot of unproven businesses out there. There's a lot that are, you know, go up and down in terms of the level of profit they make, or they might not even make a profit or have positive operating cash flow, or they might be very indebted. So we're essentially filtering out uh, companies that we don't want to own and only concentrating our investment opportunities on things that have these characteristics. It's pretty simple. Uh, I know, and it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to be simple to apply for the team. The other part of value is what price are you paying for these opportunities? So you've, you've determined there's a quality business there, but in order to make investment returns for a future opportunity to exist, you actually have to pay the right price. There's no point in our view paying for all of the future growth in a business if you can even ascertain what that is. Uh, if that growth doesn't manifest, you know, you, you'll suffer a, a fall in the share price as a result or a derate in the PE. So it's really important that you just pay the right price. We tend not to be uh, assuming too much growth going forward. If we can buy a good business with the markets not assuming growth, then we're happy to do so. Good answer. I'd just like to add, I think too, that the quality aspects become increasingly important in a difficult operating environment like we've seen, well, through COVID and post-COVID actually. And you know, some of the other aspects that uh, that come to mind for me are assessing whether a management team's actually been through cycles. You say, look at someone like Greg Goodman, went through a pretty tough time in the GFC. That was now 17 years ago, this has been a tough period as well, but you'd back that team and him, for instance, to make better decisions than a management team that perhaps haven't been around for several cycles. Um, So we're looking also, I think, at management tenure and experience, uh, looking for redundancies and buffers in the business. So if something goes wrong, uh, there's not a major downgrade. Um, 
I think acquisitions and divestments in a tough operating environment, management making good decisions around that is uh, consistent with uh, quality as well. And the, the business competitive advantage also, and whether a company's vertically integrated or not, can, can be quality factors as well, if I was just to add. Right, question two, you say that you try and buy good companies cheaply, but if these companies are actually good, then why do they sell at a discount? It's a good question. Why would a, why would a quality business uh, trade at a discount or why would you be able to pay a what in our view would be a decent price for that business? I think the core reason why that happens is that investors are generally an impatient bunch of people. So if you haven't got a business doing well today, it's more often than more likely uh, than not that, that investors will sell that business and try and put their money into something that is doing well today. Now, that creates price distortions in the market. So the share price of a company can be a popularity contest in some sense in that if things are going well, the price will generally be high. You'll pay a high price for that that company. If things aren't going well, and that might be because there's a, a drought in a commodity-oriented business. It might be because the housing cycle is at a low point. It might be because there's write-offs and technology issues with a company. But if we determine that the business is a quality business um, and there's a price that we can pay that makes sense for the medium to long run, then we're not too concerned about the short term. So any business or any quality business can have short-term issues. If you look at the ASX today, they've just written off $300 million worth of software that they've developed. If you look at CSR over time, sometimes you can buy that business for the land backing or the asset backing only and not pay for the building part of the business. You could buy Grain Corp a few years ago for less than the price of its infrastructure assets. It owns more infrastructure in grain exports than any other company on the east coast of Australia. At the bottom of the drought, the market will mark the price of that business way down. So in all those cases, we determine that they are quality businesses, but they do go through short-term cycles. And I've heard you say many times that duration and timing um, are the enduring points of difference for an active manager. And um, they will, I think, will be enduring and won't change because uh, particularly given the rise of passive and quick changes in the market, trading activity and so on? Yeah, I've often said and I often thought that our, our enduring point of difference or competitive advantage is that we can invest for the medium term. So when the market is very short-term focused, the ability to look beyond that and say this is a good business for the right price, I think gives you a distinct advantage in the stock market particularly. All right, question three is how do you limit the downside when investing? couple of ways and this seems I think this seems obvious but you d- you buy quality businesses you buy businesses that can stand on their own two feet and if you pay the right price there's there's just mathematically less downside I think when we when we look at companies and you have a straightforward and common sense investment process that you follow over time, you can remove factors that create risk for shareholders. So the we'll talk about it probably later on, but the the strength of a good balance sheet is that is that the business can stand on its own two feet. It's not dependent on the share price to raise capital. The strength of cash flow, again, is that the business is is independent uh, of financiers outside the company to to provide funds. So if you can remove things that create risk for shareholders, um, that that is a good way to limit the downside. 
All right, this leads on nicely, in fact, to question four. Is risk best managed in a computer model or is there a better way? Our view is that you need to understand what you own. So all of the research that we do here is about understanding companies. And if you understand what you own, you'll understand what it what it does at various parts of the cycle. You'll understand the strength of that business. You'll understand the weakness of it. We build the portfolio here on a company by company basis. And we do pride ourselves on having done our homework before we start buying shares. Before we even value the business, we, we try and determine the qualities of those businesses and how they lack through cycles. So I think that we manage, and it's a very direct way of managing risk. So you can plug all this stuff into a, a computer and it can spit out your portfolio, or you can build the portfolio bit by bit with 20 years of experience looking at companies and talking to management teams. And you can essentially build a portfolio of things that you know how they'll act at various parts of the cycle and you know the strengths and weaknesses of those businesses. And I think that that is that is our view of how to directly control risk in an equities portfolio. All right. Now I've just pulled out a page, a slide of our one of our recent presentations, which which sums it up nicely, I think, and sums up what you've just said. So four-tiered approach to risk management, bottom-up stock analysis, hard limits and diversification. We didn't talk about that, but um, position limits, uh, having a 30 to 40 stock portfolio uh, and so on, sector allocation and sell discipline. If something fails the process, then you can't own it and you've got to move on. All right. We're up to question five. Why shouldn't I put my money in a passive index tracker or ETF? Because the fees are so much lower. That is a good question. I do think, though, that good active managers should be able to, and I say should be able to, allocate capital better than the market index over the medium to long term. If you put your money into an index, essentially you're saying that the index and the market, relative market capitalizations or size of each business is how you want to split your money. Um, the market's not always right, doesn't always price things correctly. So by by trusting the index, I think there's two things. You, you don't know what you own. You just know that you own the index and you're trusting the allocation of your capital to the relative size of every business in that index. At the moment, the biggest company in the ASX 300 index is BHP. It's about 10% of the index. So if you put a dollar into the index, 10 cents of that goes into BHP. Now, you're not making a judgment call on whether you like BHP, whether you think it's good value, whether you think it's a quality business, uh, but 10% of your money will go into that stock. And so I think we should be able to allocate money better than that. The, the outcome of that is better performance in the index over the medium to longer term. We've been able to demonstrate that here and that should occur after fees. And the aspect that I've never understood and don't understand to this day is those products that are ESG oriented, that are index trackers. By putting your money into those, you're effectively buying everything, everything that's good, bad, and indifferent. And I can guarantee you when those companies that perhaps aren't in line with your values raise capital, the index and passive players will be there for their pro rata every single time because they have to be. So effectively providing capital to businesses that you actually don't agree with what they're doing, which to me doesn't make any sense. So perhaps, well, I think investors are, are becoming more savvy on that and looking through that a bit more, but it's something I've never understood. Anyway, uh, number six, do you like a stock more or less if its price goes down? Usually, if we've done our homework and our thesis hasn't changed, uh, we like it more. So theoretically, if something that you like goes on sale and you can buy it more cheaply than you could yesterday, uh, 
you should want to buy more of it. We generally do. But it is important to write your stock thesis down before you start investing because facts change, perceptions change, you, your story or your original thesis of why you bought the stock might change or you can be wrong as well. So if nothing's changed, we like the stock more. If things change, we will also change our view. All right, good answer. All right, question seven. Your investment process of low debt, profitable companies, good management and ESG looks a bit simple. How can that possibly work when markets are so complicated? I think it does work because we we simplify things, uh, we simplify complex issues in markets. And, and when you can stick to that and when you know what it is and you can apply it, apply it consistently, I think simplifying things down actually makes things a lot clearer. You know where you are, you've got a radar you know, on, on where you are in markets. You can buy things when they go down. You know you've done enough work before you start buying shares and all these things prepare you for the volatility that occurs in the stock market. So I think it is simple, but when markets are moving around on so many complex things, I mean, one of the things that's most interesting about this job is that markets are affected by politics, economics, overseas news, interest rates, currencies, you name it. Uh, and also perceptions and fear and greed. If you haven't got a very uh, distinguished or distinguishable process or something that you know what it is, you can stick to that over time. Um, the tendency is you might get a bit lost on what news is coming out and why you own things in the first place. So I think having a repeatable and common sense approach actually really works uh, for all of those reasons. It, it cuts through the noise. You've often said that if you don't stick to your investment process, then you're lost. You actually forget where you're at. So it's uh, it's actually quite comforting to go back to that and uh, and your investors know you're investing that way as well, which is important to uh, for us to do what we say we're going to do. Good answer. All right, number eight. We talk about it a lot. Now's the chance to explain and answer the question that many have been wondering and wanting to ask. What are the advantages of a company having a good balance sheet? or the downside of a company having a poor balance sheet? I'll talk about the downside first. So if you've got too much debt, uh, you are dependent on your bankers to roll that debt, provide that debt, uh, keep providing you that debt if you have the debt in place, and equity holders are, are vulnerable to that. Many good businesses have gone down uh, to zero, gone bankrupt, uh, because they have had too much debt. One of some of the great empires like uh, what Alan Bond built up, you know, he had some probably some good businesses in there, had some media businesses, had brewing businesses, but in the end it all unwound because of too much debt. So the advantage of having a good balance sheet is that ultimately it provides you with flexibility, flexibility to not raise money at a bad time in the share market, you not depend on, on outside forces. I think that's very important. I mean, equity holders are the last piece in the capital chain. So you're you're carrying the risk and everyone else gets paid before you. So it's really important that you do have low levels of debt so you're not vulnerable. It also provides you with optionality in terms of if an industry is going through a tough period, one, you'll survive, but two, you may well be able to consolidate your industry or others at the bottom of the cycle. So it gives you optionality to actually add value and take on gearing at the right time, you take on gearing at the wrong time, you just don't have that optionality and your shareholders are vulnerable. So for a few really simple reasons, 
um, holding your powder dry until there's a good opportunity uh, where you can buy things cheaply or protect yourself or or come through a period that's quite tough in a good way will serve your shareholders well. I think often when there are debt-related discussions within a company and the banks, you, you don't hear about it as an equity holder. You just see some outcomes and decision-making that perhaps might have been driven by that, but you don't get the visibility or the transparency on the way through. It's a murky, murky world. So uh, well put, Nathan, well put. Now, question nine, why is it the case that when companies make big acquisitions, and we're talking about significant acquisitions, they are likely to be stinkers, not stonkers? We've been affected or I've been affected in my career by uh, companies doing this from time to time. Sometimes it comes out of left field. The key reason why these big acquisitions, these transformational acquisitions can be stinkers is that the company just enters a market it doesn't know. So the board doesn't necessarily know these markets, especially if they're going offshore. The management team doesn't necessarily know the markets. If you think about how some of the largest and best Australian businesses have been built, they've been built piece by piece or store by store or supplier by supplier. Um, They know the business, they know the location, they know where the stores are, they know which side of the street to be on. And then, you know, you might have 500 stores in Australia and you go and buy a thousand in the UK and you just don't have the knowledge. Plus, you don't really necessarily understand the competitive uh, situation that's, that's in a different market to here. You don't know how price works. You're not necessarily uh, confident on volumes or when to discount to your customer. Um, and I think sometimes the seller sees a large corporate coming as well and says, you know, hey, we've got the best opportunity for you or a private equity firm wants to exit and they find a buyer on all the bankers are, are on side because they're getting paid. Uh, or the CEO just wants to build a larger business for the sake of being bigger and they always find a target. So, you know, we've seen some some terrific acquisitions from Australian companies offshore, but we've also seen some real stinkers and more often is the case that they turn out poorly. You think about IAG entering the UK in 2007, the competitive situation was way more than they anticipated and they end up writing a billion dollars off there. So Borel enter the US with a big headwaters acquisition. Again, a billion dollar write-off um, back in, you know, bought that in 2016. So, you know, the companies don't necessarily know what they're getting into. They see a big price. They see a, a prize there. They see some synergies even, and the synergies never really, uh, well, probably never realised in their full effect anyway, but they never... Um, make up for the wrong price being paid at the start. I think often too the, the big acquisitions are made to almost paper over perhaps operational issues in the current business. So the acquisition's been done because it's uh, it's it's pretty evident to management that the current business perhaps has got issues or it's not growing, so they need to do something. I think the other point I'd make is that these massive deals get so much momentum behind them, and from working in uh, in markets, you get to see you know hundreds of people working on these deals, and it's months of DD and months of work. It takes a very very strong individual to stand up after three months of detailed DD and a lot of money spent to say, you know what, actually I don't think we should do this. So I think many of these deals get all the, almost all the way through. It's kind of evident that it's not quite as good as they thought, but there's just too much momentum. You just can't stop. 
Um, there's a couple of others that uh, I can think of, which we won't go into. Good answers, Nathan. So number 10, what does the term trimming the flowers and watering the weeds refer to in investment circles? I think Peter Lynch uh, from Fidelity came up with this term many years ago. It just means that there's a natural tendency is if a stock's gone well, it becomes a bigger part of your portfolio. You might you might just want to sell some and take profits and you might want to reinvest some of those profits into the companies that haven't done that well for you um, and actually increase the size of those companies that haven't done well. But even though that's a natural human tendency, it's probably the wrong thing to do in investment sense because you're reducing the size of your winning companies that are actually executing well and you're increasing the size of those companies that haven't executed well. And that actually tends to be a worse outcome for your clients. Even though it's very hard, you know, it's hard to resist doing that. We fight that all the time. And you ultimately, over the long run, if you look at the top 20 companies in Australia over the last 20 years, there's about five of them that have actually gone up in share price. So the right strategy would be to back the companies that are executing well over 20 years, stick with them and sell the others. It is interesting if people have got a little bit of time to kill. Yeah, bring up the twenty-year charts of the top fifty, the ASX. It's, it makes for sobering reading indeed. So number eleven, what is the number? I'm interested in your answer here. Um, what is the number one thing that drives a CEO? Their incentives, and that's why it's so important for the incentives of the business leaders to be in line with the shareholders. If a company leadership team or CEO is motivated to be bigger, have a bigger company because they'll get paid more or their other incentives align to that, well, you know what? They'll love a bigger company. If they're incentivized to go make a big offshore acquisition, well, they'll do that too. So we spend a great deal of time on what alignment looks like and what alignment looks like not only for the executives, but also for the board. We put a lot of weight on how many shares a board owns. Some of these poor acquisitions and poor strategic moves are can, you know, you see the board members not owning a lot of shares. And not that I think they don't care about the outcomes, but they're certainly not aligned with you as a shareholder. So we think that alignment is very important. We spend a lot of time on remuneration reports and structures of short-term incentives and long-term incentives to make sure that people are going for the things that matter and going for the things that will make for a successful investment for the shareholders over the long term. All right. Question 12, what is the biggest mistake made by investment analysts? This is something I uh, I always talk about and I'm, 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 I'm very passionate about that the best thing you can do uh, is get the earnings right. Um as an analyst, the, the most critical decision or the most critical piece of analysis you can do is get the EPS right, earnings per share for a company. That will tell you where the share price is going to go. Of course, you've got to, you've got to look at that versus where others think the earnings per share will go as well, where we are versus the so-called consensus out there or the market thoughts on where earnings should go. But you need to get the earnings right. There's too much focus, I think, on the multiple or where a, where a PE or a price to earnings multiple is looking backwards of where a price earnings multiple for this company was over the last year or last five years. It's our job to know where the PE is 
going looking forward though. So what multiple of that earnings per share will the company trade on looking forward? So to work that out, you've got to know, well, well, what does the business look like tomorrow? What are the relative strengths of this business? Is it getting stronger? Is it getting weaker? Something that used to trade on a multiple of 25 times earnings can easily trade on eight times into the future because the quality of the business has gone down or the competitive situation has changed or something's material has changed. Likewise, an eight times per year can go to 25 times tomorrow because it's actually improving business, um, consolidating its markets or, or improving some other way. So it's first get the earnings right. Don't look at where the PE was yesterday. Understand where the PE or the rating of the business is going tomorrow. Often heard you say that. Don't anchor yourself to where the PE or multiple of the stock has been in the past. Otherwise, there's a good chance you'll make a mistake moving forward. In fact, focus on the wrong things. It's been said many a time here at Ethical Partners, wisely indeed. All right, we're on to the uh, the home stretch here. So question number 13, why do most IPOs fail? What goes wrong? It's a great question because uh, something or sometimes uh, nothing goes wrong versus what they told you the business was. They're just selling it at, at the wrong price to you as a new shareholder. I think there's a massive difference in information that you have for a company that's been listed for 20 years and one that's coming to market tomorrow. You don't have the history necessarily. You don't know the, how the business works through cycles. You don't necessarily understand how it's been put together or what you know 12 acquisitions look like as one business going forward. We also look at the selling motivation of the the company that's that's IPOing, what, why are they coming to market? Is it just to sell out, realise a profit? Uh, sometimes companies come to market and the prior owners don't sell a share. They raise some new capital for growth and all of that capital actually stays within the company, which is terrific because you get the benefit of that capital uh, looking forward. So, I think sometimes the seller is, you know, the seller of a new IPO is is wanting to get out and you don't want to you don't want to be buying that. Um, they know a lot more about the business than you do. They might be aware of this is a good time in the cycle to sell. So we look at the price, we look at the quality of the business, we look to see if we understand it as well as we understand our existing investments, and we also look at the selling motivation. Um, we do a lot of work around risk on IPOs. One IPO that came to market. Uh, about two years ago, we still track where we think they should trade and where they where the selling price is listed at three dollars fifty five. It's down about fifty percent. We identified nine major areas of risk with this IPO, and as I sit here today, two years down the track, you know, not one of those risk factors has fully been realised, or you know, they're still out there for this company. So. You know, not one of those has been actually resolved in terms of the operating performance of the business, or we're not, we're still not comfortable even down 50% from where the company listed. So I think for all of those reasons, you've got to be really careful about IPOs. We do back them where we see these things actually making sense. Um, and, you know, there has been some, some good IPOs in the past, but we're very, we're very cautious for all those reasons. I think in all, I don't, haven't done the exact stats, but I'd say that we would take up. Uh, well less than 5% of available IPOs. Would you yep. say that's about right? Sounds about right, yep. All right, very good. Question 14, second last question. When a stock in your portfolio falls and continues to underperform, when and how do you decide you've made a mistake and sell out? It's really difficult to to take losses. It's 
much easier to take profits. Human nature tells you that. But writing down why you bought the stock in the first place so you can't change that um, is really important. And we do that. We do stock notes on every position or every company that we buy. We write down the reasons why we're buying it. We test ourselves against that thesis continually. If the stock's going down for what we think you know, are the wrong reasons and our thesis hasn't changed, as I said before, we, we actually do buy more. That's also difficult to do, but we're comfortable because we've done our homework. But if the thesis changes and something, we get things wrong and we realise that because we've written down the reasons, if, if, if they're different reasons or, or something comes from left field, which it, which it often does, that's when we decide to sell. The other reason is if, if the stock fails our process. So if we think it can make continual cash flow and it proves it can't or the debt gets out of a kilter between reporting seasons and you realise that or the management changes, lots of things change in investments over time and we're constantly testing that against our process and our thesis and if it changes, then we change our view. It goes back to that risk management question or questions before. Okay, final question. So when you are talking to companies about sustainability, what do you actually ask them? We ask them all the things that you might be curious about around this topic and it's a fast moving topic. Sustainability has gone from kind of a left field area to absolutely mainstream. We ask companies how they're going to offset their fossil fuel-based power with solar panels. We ask them about where they get their supply of raw materials and how they can do that responsibly, how they design product around circularity, recycling, how they they negotiate and look after Indigenous communities, uh, what their lending policies are doing to curb emissions growth if they're banks. So it's such a wide-ranging topic and we're very curious. So we, we ask all of those things. I mean, you know, how much solar power uh, or how much of, of a Bunnings energy usage or Bunnings store energy usage can be provided by solar panels on the roof? It's about 30%. Um, how do other companies actually intend to, you know, if they're a milk producing company, how do they intend to help farmers offset scope three emissions uh, by feeding cows different different feed and and the technology that goes with that. So it's such a wide-ranging topic. It's such an interesting topic. More often than not, we see companies who put sustainability initiatives in place actually have a, a very strong financial outcome attached to those as well. So we ask all the things that we're curious about, but all of these things and a lot of these initiatives actually do affect how supply chains you know, treat people or human rights in supply chains. They will also affect the emissions growth for the economy overall. So they're really important topics, but they're also really interesting topics. All right, well answered. Well, that's 15 questions plus a bonus question at the beginning. I think hopefully it's been insightful. We, we encourage listeners, their feedback. In fact, you can send in other questions. And if by popular demand, we get more questions. I reckon we could do a follow-up special edition in addition to this, love to put your questions in the comments, uh, click like or whatever you do on these podcasts. No, but seriously, I think it has been informative. These are some of the questions we've gathered from people in the last six months or so. If you've got more questions, let us know. We might do another episode. But as always, Nathan, it has been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.
The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.